Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Hey, man, so good to see you this morning. And uh, glad that you're here, glad that you're a part of today. Uh, you all showed up today because you saw me preach last week, and you were thinking, Pastor Kevin's preaching today, so you show up. <laughs> Surprise! It's me again, Margaret. So listen, hey, hopefully you've all been with us or you've been catching uh, up with us, you've been listening. So we are today starting uh, our, our fourth part of this series that we've called Irresistible, talking about how uh, there was one day uh, years and years ago that, were, that Jesus was irresistible. The movement was so powerful, so strong. Those that were coming into contact and hearing the message of Christ, it was irresistible. They couldn't uh, hold back from it. The, the scriptures became, were irresistible. The word was irresistible. And so uh, the question was, how, why is it that today God can be resistible? Why is it that that church is so resistible today? Why why is it everyone just want to be in in church and listening and and fellowshipping and growing and learning? And so that's kind of what this series has been based on. So if you have missed the first three parts, that's okay. You can go back and you can catch them on our Facebook or on our uh, uh, website or a little commercial here. We have, it's it's an app. For our church, the Exchange app. So if you haven't downloaded the app, you can download that today in your iTunes store. Um, and in the app, it has, uh, you can go listen to our sermons, see events, things that are going on, and you can be a part of it. So today we're starting part four or section four, message four. And so far, we've surveyed the entire Old Testament and we've discovered really primarily God's global agenda, one for the nation of Israel and then God's global agenda for you as well. And, and it's really been God's agenda from the beginning of time. It wasn't something that's changed. It's been very strategic in its timing and its layout. Um, we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, uh, over the last three weeks, um, how about the three major covenants that kind of hold the storyline of our Bible together. First, there was God's covenant with Moses. Then there's God's covenant with Abraham. And then, of course, finally, there's God's covenant with you, God's new covenant that is for you and and for anyone who would just choose to participate in this covenant. So each of these covenants, and and I kind of left us on a, a little bit of a cliffhanger last week talking about the terms and conditions that it takes to move into this new covenant because every covenant had terms and conditions. And so uh, the same is, there's each covenant has practical applications and practical implications uh, for the participants. And so in this message, we're going to really explore what those practical applications and implications are for those of us who are participating in and under the new covenant. Really, in other words, we're going to talk about what, what does it mean and what does it look like to live on this side of the cross, to be activated under a new covenant on a daily basis. So what are these terms and conditions look like and feel like? And so if we were to put a title to this particular message in the series, it would be this. It would be the irresistible ethic. Everybody say the irresistible ethic. That's just a fun couple words to say anyway. Now, I have now been a pastor since the year 1997. (laughs) Thank you. I got one hand clap. I appreciate that. God bless you. So so that's what, 24 years or so, 23 years uh, that I've been in ministry. And in ministry, you get all kinds of questions. You get some crazy questions, some funny questions, some good questions. All, you know, serious questions, and the question I've been asked the most, bar none, and now granted, for 15 of those years, I was a youth pastor, so 
uh, that'll give you some basis where some of these questions come from. But I've gotten this from adults too. Um, and it's this question. Pastor Jared, is blank a sin? Have you ever heard that? Is this a sin? Hey, what do you think? Is this a sin uh, or is that a sin? I've been asked that question or some version or form of that question man, more than any other question I've ever been asked. Or, you know, can I do this or can I do that? As a Christian, can I say this or do that or go there? And, uh, and here's why. And, and some of you have probably asked that question, if you're honest. I know that for sure, growing up, I asked that question many, many times. Can I do this? Can I do that? As a Christian, can I go here? But for me, I was taught that most of my life, this, that sin offends God. And so, of course, I had to avoid sin in order to avoid offending God. And that made sense. And, and there are partial truths in there, but I wasn't sure, and this is where the line was drawn, I wasn't sure where the enjoyment of life ended and the sin part began. Does that make sense? Anybody else with me? You, you wanted to know how much can I do until it becomes wrong to do it and I can't do it anymore. It's human nature to want to know exactly where the okay and the not so okay lines are drawn because it's also human nature to snuggle up typically as close to the not so okay as possible and still be okay with God. Okay? Right? And so... I mean, I didn't want to be guilty of sin, amen? That wasn't my goal. I didn't want to be guilty of sin, but I sure did not want to miss out on anything that wasn't off limits, <laughs> right? Come on, let's be honest this morning. Nobody's here but you and everybody else watching online. Um, so I wanted to know what was, what was okay, and so thus, all those questions about what does the Bible say about this, and what does the Bible say about that, and is it okay to do this or that? Now, in the version of Christianity that I've been around for most of my uh, life, you know, growing up and stuff, uh, there was sin avoidance was pretty much the guiding light in everything that I did. So my, let me try to say it another way. So my whole relationship with God and my mission and my goal in life. Now, this is the way I took it. Maybe you didn't take it this way, so I'm not saying it's the way everybody sees it. But my mission was to avoid sin so that I was right with God. That was most of my goal growing up in, in life is what, what I shouldn't do and what I don't want to do because I don't want to offend God or make God unhappy with me. So I avoided sin because as I understood it, as long as I wasn't breaking any of God's rules, then me and God were okay, right? And, and as long as me and God were okay, then all is well with my soul. And so then once we're okay, then God can hear and answer all my prayers. If we're okay. And to be okay, I had to watch all my sin issues. Anybody else ever struggle with those kinds of things? So the whole thing, when you think about it, it's very vertical. Now, we shared this a few years ago, and it, it's just been so important because it's really become so much of a, a foundation of who I am as a pastor today uh, and what I believe. I was far more concerned at this time with how my behavior affected my standings with God rather than how my behavior might affect my relationship with anyone else. Because after all, it specifically says in the Bible that pleasing God is more important than pleasing man. Can I get an amen? It says that. And so it was all about this. That was the most important thing. It had nothing to do with anyone else. So in other words, if I was mad at you or offended with you or you hurt me or I did something and I wronged you and I did you dirty, Jonathan, I could go to God and I could do like everything. If I, and me and God were now good, 
but I would avoid you like everything. If I see you coming in the grocery store, I'm going down the other aisle. I'm running the other way. Me and God are good. That's the most important thing. And so I would continue to avoid you because I told him I was sorry. I shouldn't have did what I did and said what I said. So me and God were good. Does that make sense? And, and this, whole, this whole approach to this view uh, is called vertical morality. Okay, vertical morality assumes that God's primary concern is how our behavior affects him. The verti- this is the vertical part. Uh, in this way of thinking, God personally is offended by certain behaviors which are contrary to his nature, contrary to his sensibility, contrary to his holiness. And while all of that is true, it certainly creates a very eye-to-the-sky mentality, vertical morality. It always left me wondering how my behavior was sitting with God. I always wondered what God was thinking about everything that I did. And since I couldn't actually see God, I couldn't read his body language, and I couldn't read his facial expressions, I was often left wondering a lot of those questions. Is God okay with this? Is God okay with this behavior or this action or this attitude or this conversation? And, of course, there's a little bit of hypocrisy woven into all of that. My primary concern wasn't how sin affected God really when you think about it. My primary concern was always me. It was always me. I was concerned offending God would one day come back and haunt me. And so I was still the focus, not to mention wondering how close I could actually get to sin without burning and losing my relationship with God altogether. And it's really a flawed approach to faith and a relationship with God for sure, but it is so, so common. You see it all the time. This is most, most people today still kind of operate in this mixing and matching of covenants. Now, there's a second, perhaps less obvious expression of vertical morality. And so through the years, I've run into a lot of people who aren't asking how close I can get to sin or how low I can go without actually losing contact. They're asking a more virtuous question, a more righteous in nature question. And it's this, how high can I get? Not that kind of high. But how, how close can I get to God? You know, I want to know God more. I want to get deeper in a relationship with God. And we start, I want to experience God deeper. And they ask a different set of questions. And these questions are more virtuous. And they're good questions. But uh, how can I get closer to God? How can I know God more intimately? How can I receive all God has for me? All three of those questions are actually book titles because there's books written about these questions. How can I get closer to God? Well, I'm going to tell you in 400 pages how you can get, how can I know God more intimately? I'm going to tell you all the steps to know God more intimately. And they're all, all, it's a noble pursuit while seeking intimacy with God. It's a great idea and it's a great pursuit. The, The benefit is still not really to God. It's still to the seeker, right? It's still all about me. How can I? I, I, need, I need to be deep. I want to know God more. So think about it. When people are seeking a deeper experience, really they're seeking something for themselves, which is fine. But those are, that are seeking to be closer to God can be just as self-absorbed at times as those that are trying to figure out how far they can go without crossing over that not-so-okay line. So maybe this will help you. And I'm going somewhere. You just got to hang with me. And I'm getting notifications on my phone. My daughter's at a cheer competition in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's why I'm wearing Woodland's Elite. What, what? Woodland's Elite. I FaceTimed her this morning. I told her, baby, I'm repping. I'm repping. So... Uh, is that kind of, no, that'd be that, there you go, something like that, I don't know, anyway, y'all totally messed me up, let me get back on track here, so 
And, and thinking all of that, it might help you to know this a little bit about me. I, I've played on both sides of this fence. There were, as have probably a lot of you, if we're honest. But I've, also, I've been in the lifestyle for years and years where I wanted to see how far away I could get and still be okay, how, how, what I could get away with that's not sin. And I really, I used to always beg God. I wish I had a list on my door of things that absolutely I could not do. That would be way more clear, way more clear. If you would just tell me everything I couldn't do, that would be a lot easier. That way I could enjoy everything else. And, uh, and then I also switched into this side where uh, I wanted to know God more. When, when I started getting into ministry and started leading a Bible school, it was all about, I want to know God more. I want to I be more intimate with God. I want to go deeper in my relationship with God. And so I, I began to pursue God in that way. And when I was about 20 years ago, 20 years old, <laughs> I really said goodbye to that, how low can I go mentality. And I started trying to do the opposite, the more virtuous side. And and I began to pray. I developed a, a constant prayer life, and a lot of which I still have today. Um, uh, and I, I just sought God and pursued God and, and wanted to know God and read more about God. And we had a bell tower at our church in Wichita Falls, and you go up to the back, you climb up all these stairs, you get to the baptistry, then you climb up this ladder, then you go up this little catwalk, and then you climb up this bell tower. And it was really cool. You open up the hatch, and you could see kind of over the city, and I would go up there, and I would spend an hour every day. And with our Bible school, we taught them, you know, pray an hour every day. We're going to discipline ourselves, and we were teaching. And it was just a, a, just a relentless pursuit of a more intimate relationship with God. And I developed this really consistent prayer life. And I went as deep as I could go in my relationship with God, or at least a version of deep. But at the end, when I look back, through all these years of that pursuit, I realized ultimately most of it was still all about me. My intimate times in prayer were important and they were great, but a lot of the actions that I did and the things that, that I, I tried to require was really all about me. In fact, I learned this, that the more holy that I got, the closer that I thought to God that I got, the more intolerant I became and the more judgmental I became of people who weren't. I, I found myself, <laughs> I don't even know if I should say this, but I'm going to say this. So I found myself even in the, with the homosexual community. Um, we did a, a program called Hell House, and we had a scene that was, you know, talking about the sin as I understood it then of homosexuality, and, and we had this scene, and we had these magazines and people come in, and we had Seventeen Magazine do an article about it, and they quoted me in Seventeen Magazine, and I said this, I love the sinner, I hate the sin. But my actions actually said, I don't like you until you change. So I would, I would say things like, I love the sinner and I hate the sin, but my actions were like, I can't love you as a sinner. <laughs> Does that make sense? And I was intolerant because I was so close to Jesus. I couldn't stand people who didn't agree with what I agreed with because I'm, I'm like Jesus manifested on the earth, right? And so I just was so judgmental because I didn't understand. I, I, I just, and, and, and to be completely honest, I was totally off course, completely in left field and missing Jesus's point altogether. I was striking out so bad, but that was my, I just thought I was getting closer to God. I was just really getting more judgmental. Now, if we're honest, both of these approaches, whether it's how low or how high, both of them are really eye to the sky approaches, vertical morality. Both approaches are fueled by traditions of mixing and matching old text with new text, old covenant with new covenant assumptions, old covenant ideas with new covenant ideas. And to be honest, a steady diet of personalizing and individualizing concepts from the Old Testament contributes to the creation of a very vertically oriented faith. 
when you take those traditions and those ideals and you put them into play today, it really, really drives home a vertically oriented faith. Now, when you're looking back through the law and the prophets and what we call the Old Testament, and you're studying that out and you see God's covenant, especially God's first covenant with the the nation of Israel, you'll see immediately that God's covenant with the nation of Israel was very vertically morale. It was extraordinary vertical, and it was that way on purpose because you have to think about it. God was establishing a brand new people group, a brand new nation from scratch. He needed their undivided attention. In fact, the preamble to this Sinai covenant underscores that because here's what it was. It was keep your eyes on me and on my commandments or else. Okay? That's kind of that's the way it was. It doesn't get any more vertical than that statement right there. Keep your eyes on me and my covenants, my commandments or else. And so the commandments were all designed to keep the nation of Israel separate from all the other nations. They were not permitted to marry. They were not permitted to mix our own people group. They were told to mingle. They weren't allowed to mingle with anybody outside of their own people group. They were told to secure their borders. And any foreigners that came in that started misbehaving, they were to expel them, kick them out, get rid of them. So after Moses passed the leadership torch to Joshua, God reiterated the same idea to the nation's new commander-in-chief, Joshua, when he says this in Joshua 1.8. He says, Joshua, listen, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So we see throughout the Old Testament, (laughs) this divine blessing coming from God was really contingent upon the nation fixing their eyes on God and fixing their eyes on God's law at all times. Vertical, very vertical. Obedience to the law would result for them an economic and military blessing over and over and over. That was part of the covenant. That was part of the plan. Keep your eyes on me. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to prosper you. Keep your eyes focused here. This was the tone and the texture for everything associated with the old covenant. It was very vertical, but on purpose. Vertical morality will leave you wondering and guessing answers to questions that the Bible really doesn't even give answers to. It leaves people with sincere hearts longing for more and people that hearts are not so sincere trying to get away with less. So I can imagine right now somebody is thinking, okay, Pastor Jared, if this vertical morality is actually really a thing, I'm not sure I'm really buying into this, but let's just say that it's a thing So what's the opposite of vertical morality? Was it horizontal morality? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So where do you come up with this nonsense? I'm glad you asked. Jesus. Jesus is where we come up with this nonsense. As we discovered earlier, Jesus said several things in his famous mountain message that served as kind of a heads up that something new was on the horizon during that same mountain message, that same message that really started to spin things out of control. He made the following statement. He said this in in Matthew chapter 5. He says, therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, and in this, that translation is not talking relative necessarily. It's talking about friend, family member, whatever, acquaintance has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And the crowd goes wild. <laughs> right? They, they probably did it. We do, because that's exciting. That makes sense. But they didn't. 
And the reason they didn't is because they're probably shaking their head in disbelief. This is kind of ridiculous that he would even say that. Because think about it this way. Most Jewish people that he's talking to in this crowd only visited the temple two, maybe three times. Well, some of them one or two times a year. A year. Now, for Jesus and his crew that are from Galilee, it's a three-day journey to the temple. And so Jesus basically just said, when you travel three days and you get to the temple and you're standing in line at the temple to present your offering and you remember that you're offended with Kimmy back home, you leave your gift at the altar and you go three days back home and you fix it. And people are going, you got to be kidding me. I only go to the temple a couple times a year, and, and the lines are long, and it is hot, and people have got their kids, and they're unruly, and people got their animals, all these animals. And can you, you know what animals do. And can you imagine the smell? The smell that's there, and I'm standing in this long temple line, and then I think about Kimmy. I'm, Kimmy's offended with me, and I get to go fix that? You kidding me? Kimmy's going to have to wait until I get home from this trip. We're going to go to Six Flags over Jerusalem or whatever and do all this stuff. But I, I'm, not, I'm not just getting out of line and going home. While I'm here, I'm going to do my thing because, after all, pleasing God is more important than pleasing man. Right? Or is it? I mean, while, while some of what Jesus taught was borderline heretical, this was just <coughs> impractical. There was no way in Hades somebody was going to give up their place in line, go searching for some unhappy camper back home just so that they can make right whatever it is. The offended party, they're just going to have to wait. They're going to have to wait. Besides, it's all about God. It's all about my sacrifice, my gift to God. Did Jesus really, 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 did he mean to imply that reconciling with a brother or a sister should actually come before reconciling with God. Making things right with someone who may have something against us is more important than temple worship, church, okay, for today. Did God really believe that horizontal morality should take precedence over vertical? Surely not. But that's what he said. And as it turns out, that's exactly what he meant. It was new. This was new. It was brand new. They'd never thought of this, never heard of this. And today, even in 2021, some people are going, wait, wait, wait. You got to be kidding me. That, that, that dealing with people would be more important than dealing with God. And Jesus is going, that's what I've been trying to tell you all along. I'm trying to show you something. The, the, the covenant that I'm laying out before you, it's all on me for you. And there's just a couple things that I need you to do to be a part of this covenant, to live and to, to manifest this covenant. So then you look 17 chapters later, we find the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. <laughs> They've kind of gathered together, and they're taking bets on which one which one of these groups can humiliate Jesus in public, okay? So they're getting together, and they're ready to just throw down on Jesus. So the Sadducees, uh, I mean, the Pharisees, they're up first. The Pharisees sent a group of interns, basically, up to Jesus to ask him an IRS question, okay? Jesus does a coin trick and sends them packing with their tail between their legs, okay? Totally shut them up. So they go back. So the Sadducees, they're up next. Their question was basically a riddle that ended with a question because riddles end with question. So their riddle was this. Jesus, you have a woman. She's married to a brother. The brother dies and married to another and another. She's married to all seven brothers. They're all dead now. When she dies, she's dead. Who's she going to be married to in heaven? Which is funny coming from the Sadducees because the Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in heaven. So this question was really, really two-sided because it was a jab, one, because they didn't even believe in the afterlife, okay? So the point of their question was to, uh, to underscore the absurdity, absurdity of that. So Jesus just smiles at them, 
and he tells them they need to go home, they need to read their Bible, and, and when he's saying that, he's talking about the law and prophets, because the New Testament hadn't even been, you know, people are documenting that about now, but I have no idea where that's coming from. So go home and read their Bible. They don't know the first thing about their own scriptures. And to prove it, he leveraged a verb tense (coughs) from a passage in Genesis that left everybody speechless. And so the Sadducees slowly backed into the crowd. (laughs) So the Pharisees, seeing all this happen, they're like, okay, we're going again. We're going again, and we're taking our best shot. So they regrouped, and they're getting together. Now, you got to remember, we know all this because Matthew is with Jesus at the time. Matthew's part of the group that's traveling with Jesus. And so Matthew's there, and Matthew's documenting. He's taking notes. He's, he's writing this stuff down. So Matthew's telling us this because he saw it firsthand. Matthew says that hearing Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're going to take another shot. Now, this time, the Pharisees, they send a lawyer out. A lawyer, this is, this is so pro. This is, this is a great shot at Jesus. They, the Sadducees, they get together, and one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with a question. So it's important to note, <coughs> this a lawyer is there. He isn't there to learn anything from Jesus. He's there trying to build his own resume, okay? The, the tax question you know, the IRS question didn't get Jesus. This little riddle about the afterlife, that didn't get Jesus. So what they did was they sent in someone who was an expert, someone who knew exactly what was going on. So they send in this expert of the law to really put Jesus on the ropes, and perhaps this was going to be the thing that would really throw Jesus off. So the lawyer <coughs> walks up to Jesus, and he says, Listen, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Now, this wasn't an unusual question, but every good Jew in the audience knew the textbook answer to this question. Everybody knew the answer to this question. So Jesus gives the textbook answer to this question, and he says this, Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, and it is the greatest commandment. And he was right. Rabbis had been teaching that for generations. That is the first and it is the greatest. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, your strength. That is the first and the greatest commandment. Now, the more difficult question, in fact, perhaps the lawyer's follow-up question would have been, what does it look like exactly to love God with all one's heart, with all one's soul, with all one's mind? What what does it mean? What does it mean exactly to love God like that? How does one go about doing that? Because religious leaders also had a textbook answer for that as well, but it was very vertical. The answer was very vertical because the way the ancient Jews demonstrated their love for God was by keeping the commandments, the law, the old covenant. In other words, keep God's law and you keep God happy. That's why there was such conflict because they really struggled to keep the law. They really, really, really struggled in that. And and so perhaps now, and we don't know exactly what his second... Uh, intent was because the lawyer actually didn't get to ask his second question. But to be honest, in traditional Jewish way of thinking, obedience to the lesser was devotion to the greater. So in keeping the commandments, you got to keep all the commandments. And if you keep all the commandments, it was showing devotion to the greater, which is what they believed you do to be a good Jew. Jesus, however, avoided a lot of the lesser commandments that weren't actually real commandments. A lot of them was just oral law that had been kind of created and passed down. And so maybe the, the lawyer's question was to trap Jesus to prove that Jesus didn't even show uh, a lot of uh, action to the lesser. Therefore, he didn't honor the greater, so Jesus was in violation. So we don't know exactly what the point of the lawyer's second question was going to be because, like I said, he didn't get to ask it. Because without a pause, (laughs) Jesus looks at him and he says, the second is like it. 
And when he says that, the lawyer's probably thinking, I didn't ask about the second. I was just asking what the first one, but I do have another question. Jesus didn't even give him a moment to talk. Jesus says, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as in almost the great, almost as great as the first, almost as great as the greatest. What did Jesus mean by the second is like it? How much like it is it like? So before we go there, historically, it's important for us first to go here. This is the first time in recorded history that these two old covenant commands were actually used together. Because both of these statements, loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then loving your neighbor, both of these are old covenant statements, but they have never up until this point been used together. The first one makes its debut in Deuteronomy, and the second one about loving your neighbor, it shows up in Leviticus. But the first time in history that the two were ever used together was unique and original with Jesus. This was new. This was yet another in a series of statements pointing to the change that was coming. Jesus' point was this, that there are actually two greatest commandments, not one. That was his point. There are two greatest commandments, not one. The second commandment was not second in importance. It was just second in sequence. Now, the command that comes in sequence was equally as great, equally as important as the first one. And that's really, really important for us to get a hold of. It was like it in magnitude. It was like it in significance. Jesus would go on to say in the same conversation that these two commandments, and go ahead and put up that chart, uh, TJ. Jesus would say in the same conversation, he'd say these two commandments, the love God with all your heart, love Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments can sum up the entire law and prophets. That is a giant statement. I mean, giant statement. These two things, if you love God, love your neighbor, it covers all the other law. It, It sums up your entire Bible. This is what he's telling this Jewish leader. His words were, this is what Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hinge on these two commandments. If you would have asked the first century Jews what it looked like to love God, they would say, obey his commandments. Jesus was suggesting, "Mm, there's a new answer to that. I have a new answer. No, 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 Jesus. It's obey his commandments. This is still taught today in Children's church and Sunday school and churches all over the place. The most important thing is obey his commandments. And Jesus right here is making a statement and going, "Mm, there's a new answer here. His answer would be, if you want to love God, if you want to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, you need to love your neighbor. You have to love your neighbor. And his point was unmistakable, that love for God. Now, everybody catch this. If you want to write this down, or you could take a picture of the slide or whatever, but love for God was best demonstrated and authenticated by loving one's neighbor. Okay? Loving God was best demonstrated and authenticated by loving one's neighbor. And this was another clue that something new was on its way. Something brand new was still on the horizon. This was foreshadowing, and it certainly wasn't vertical anymore because it was all about keeping commandments, keeping commandments, keeping God happy, keeping God happy, staying in the okay, not avoiding the not so okay, and God, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? And God says, hey, you want to be okay, then you love all these people. You want to show me how much you love me? Then you love him and him and her and her and him and them. Everybody. According to Jesus, anyone who mistreats a neighbor wasn't showing love. Vertical love for God was going to be manifested through horizontal love for our neighbors. It's as if Jesus was saying this. Don't claim adherence to commandment number one 
if you're guilty of violating commandment number two. So when God says the second is like it, he's not saying it's, it's second as in lower in importance. He's saying it's just like it. If you're going to do one, it's because you're doing the other. If you're going to love God, cousin, that your love for God is evident and evident in the world today, it's because of the second one, your love for your neighbor. Wow, this was really disturbing because Jesus was always calling out religious leaders for the way that they mistreated the Jews. The Jews always were mistreating each other. They were always just abusing. And and if Jesus was correct in what he's saying, and let's just face it, in my belief, Jesus was always correct. If Jesus was correct, then they were guilty of violating what was widely accepted as the first and the greatest commandment. Which brings us to neighbor. Now, love your neighbor. Now, I bet I know what comes to your mind when you hear the term love your neighbor, but where we're headed, you need to understand what came to the first century Jews' thoughts when they heard love your neighbor because it's probably a little bit different than what you're thinking. Because to a Jew, a Jewish neighbor, a Jew's neighbor was another Jew. It was Jewish people. It were people that were descendants of Abraham. For a Jew to love another neighbor as he or she loved themselves would mean for them to love another Jew, which was pretty easy to do because they were all Jews, and so it made sense. So to love oneself, to love oneself, a neighbor as you do yourself, I have to love my neighbors. And so it made sense because they were like, this is Jews. We're all Jews. So that's the first thing that kind of comes to their mind. Loving neighbors was code for loving other Jews. But Jesus' new movement meant more than loving other Jews. His new movement welcomed the foreigner who was living among them as well as the foreigner still living in foreign lands. So his new command was really even beyond that nation, and it actually included all the nations. This is kind of mind-blowing to them. So as he had done on previous occasions, he began to alter the rules and he redefined the terms because the era of defining neighbor ethnically was coming to an end. So to prepare his followers for what was coming, Jesus once again veers kind of outside the boundaries of the Levitical law, and he redefines neighbor. And here's how he defines it. Here's how it goes. It went down. This is not too long after episode one of Stump the Rabbi with the three groups of people. Jesus, he's (coughs) approached by another lawyer. It's not the same guy. He's approached by another lawyer with another question. This is a trick question. This lawyer asked this, teacher, rabbi, what must I do to inherit aeonios zoe? Okay, it, it says eternal life, but as we've talked about for a few years now, eternal life is not talking about heaven, streets of gold, and and all that kind of stuff, mansions. Eternal life is translated aeonios zoe, which means age during or or abundant life. It's easier explained abundant life, full life, blessed life while on this earth. Okay, so it's not talking about afterlife when it's translated eternal. So teacher, what must I do to have full, abundant, blessed life? Which, of course, is a great question. But Jesus knew that there's actually a question behind the question, that this was a setup question. And so the way Jesus responds is he answers the question by asking a question. And, to, and Jesus asks him, he says, well, what do, you, what do you think it says? I mean, what do you say? It means, and, and he says, well, what is written? How do you read it? Which is translated, you tell me and we'll both know. This is where it gets really interesting because the lawyer has been following Jesus. So he's been watching Jesus and he's been listening to Jesus. So the lawyer knows Jesus's greatest commandments formula because he saw Jesus say it and do it. So the lawyer's perfect prepared, so he grins because he's probably thinking he's fixing to stump the rabbi again, 
And so he answers and he says, love God, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And when I read this, I like the picture that he looks over at his wife and winks at her like, I got this, watch. And then he says, love your, and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Mic drop, boom. Okay? And, and Jesus replied, do this, or he replied, you, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But then the lawyer shows his cards. Luke tells us that the lawyer was really there to just justify himself. And so he's trying to trip Jesus up in the process. So he asks another question, a question that I guarantee you he would regret for the rest of his life because he never actually figured it out. He asked this question, so Jesus, who is my neighbor? Easy enough, right? This was the question behind the question. The unabridged version of this question was this. Jesus, what is the minimum amount of neighbor love that I'm required to perform to ensure that I have aeonios zoe? For me to live the abundant way when it comes to loving my neighbor. Now, based on the Levitical passage cited above, he assumed, as everyone in the crowd assumed, that neighbor love was restricted to just descendants of Abraham, other Jews. But his question was really more this, but which Jews? All Jews? And, and how much love is enough love? How much love is actually required for me to qualify to this Aeonios Zoe kind of life? He was looking for a formula, not for God's sake, certainly not for his neighbor's sake. He was looking for a formula for him. He was digging back into the old covenant mindset and concepts, and he was going into that vertical morality. So he asked, who is my neighbor? I want specifics. But of course, Jesus saw through uh, all of that and he also saw this as a perfect opportunity to deconstruct everybody that's listening, all the Jews, because Jesus knows what's about to happen. So instead of reconstructing and taking the old covenant that they were familiar with and just kind of building to a designated end, so instead of trying to add to something that he was completing, he decides to deconstruct it because in just a few months from this conversation right here, Jesus is establishing and rolling out the new covenant. It's about to fall into place. And so for the new covenant to fall into place, Jesus knows that the message, the gospels that are about to be spread has to go beyond Judea and Galilee, okay? So for it to go beyond Judea and Galilee, he's got to help his followers lose their racist tendencies. Amen, right? Because this, Jesus knew that this was a new covenant, and the new covenant was for the entire world, so that, that, that this nation could bless all the nations of the entire world. And to do that, you can't be a racist. This was a big deal. This was a really big deal. And so when Jesus is saying this, he's, he's saying, listen, you're going to have to abandon your, your uh, ancient racist ways. So he launched into his most disorienting, paradigm-shifting, mind-bending parable of all, and here's how he responded. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, and they left him half dead. At which point the lawyer's thinking, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. We were just talking about neighbor, and now you're talking about Jericho and some guy. I... So you guys probably know the story, so I'm not going to go through it all, but the story goes that this man is left beaten and left for dead, and two religious people pass by, <coughs> and they didn't lift a finger to help. Not only did they not lift a finger to help, they went out of their way to go way away from this guy. So they, they leave him there, and uh, so they didn't pass him. And now if Jesus' greatest hits formula is true, then these men were in a lot of trouble because they could go to the temple and make all the sacrifices they want, but God's not really hearing their prayers because they didn't go and take care of the one in need. You know, they, they had this issue. And so 
they, they didn't love their Jewish neighbor with all their heart and their mind, soul, and strength as a reflection of their love for God. Therefore, since they didn't love their neighbor, they must not love God. Now, at this point of the story, everybody in Jesus' audience is leaning in, okay? Every time Jesus spoke, he had people leaning in and listening to what he had to say. And he had them going. He had their attention. And he wrinkles his eyebrows, and he probably says this. He's looking around at his audience, and he says, but a Samaritan. Now, when he says that, I imagine that he pauses because the crowd probably made a lot of noise, like shuffling, murmuring, whispering. And, you know, when you're talking to a lot of people, uh, it can get loud. If everybody's whispering, it can get really loud. So I'd imagine, because he's telling this great story, the lawyer asked a question about a neighbor. Jesus goes way off track for some reason, talking about a man getting beaten and blah, 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 and then telling about these religious leaders that pass by. And then all of a sudden, he says, but a Samaritan. And people got to be thinking, surely he's not going to make a Samaritan the hero in this story. But he does. He does. He goes on and he says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the man was. Now, again, the listeners in his audience, they're probably thinking, I know the story. I know the story. The Samaritan, that's who robbed him. Samaritan, that's who robbed him and beat him. They had to do that. He says, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. No, 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 no. That's not the way the story goes, Jesus. You can't make a Samaritan the hero. But he did. He went on and he says this. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. A few years ago, we spent a couple months going through a series called Get Off Your Donkey and Abr uh, to First Arable and how Jesus redefined neighbor uh, to first century Jews and how he really painted a whole new landscape for us today. Because to first century Jews, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Few, if any, in Jesus' audience would do anything for a Samaritan. And no Samaritan, no Samaritan would actually take pity and, and do anything like that for a Jew, especially not touch them. These groups didn't like each other. They didn't speak. They didn't touch. It was just how things were done. But Jesus wasn't finished. The next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. This was so over the top. Did he really expect people in his audience to believe that a Samaritan would spend his entire night caring for a Jew, not only caring for a Jew, but going over the top? No Jew, no Jew should expect to spend that much imagination on a story designed to distract them from the fact that he was asked a question about a neighbor in the first place, and now Jesus is making up this crazy long story, and he's starting to talk about a Samaritan. He's going out of his way to get out of the first question. Now, once the people settle down, Jesus does something that his audience would not live long enough to appreciate. Jesus redefines neighbor for everybody, forever. From this point forward, no one would have the latitude to limit the definition of neighbor to people like themselves. Jesus expanded neighbor beyond the boundaries of Judea and Galilee, beyond a single ethnicity, and he broadened the definition beyond his first century settings. Now, the question is still forced thousands and thousands and thousands of years later to the most upright among us to examine our own hearts and our prejudice, our content for people who aren't like us. For more than 2,000 years, believers and skeptics alike have felt this way. The Sermon on the Mound, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was a signal and it was a sign and it was a reminder as Jesus had been doing all along from the beginning. He was showing them that something new is coming. 
that things are changing, that things are never, ever, ever going to be the same again. Something better, something simpler, something for everyone. Therefore, anyone who hears the parable of the Good Samaritan knows the answer to the closing question. And this is a question (coughs) that Jesus asked, but Jesus didn't just ask this question. Jesus modeled it. And here is the question he asked in Luke chapter 10, verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And the question, or the answer to the question was obvious. The implications to the answer of the question, not so obvious. Especially for us modern readers. The question behind Jesus' closing question, the real question was this. Which of these three men loved the Lord God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength? That's the question. That's the question for us today over and over and over and over. And after perhaps maybe what was the longest pause ever in a conversation, the lawyer finally answers and he looks at Jesus And there's this moment, and he knows, he doesn't even want to say it because he knows once it comes out of his mouth, he's now going to be held accountable for what he says and for the answer to his question. And the lawyer finally sits there, and he says, the one who had mercy on him. Apparently, he couldn't even bring himself to utter the ethnic identity of the hero in the story. It was the Samaritan. It was the Samaritan who showed mercy. It was the Samaritan who laid claim to this Aeonios Zoe. Life, full life. Why? Because he stopped and he had compassion and he took time to love someone that wasn't like him, to love someone who didn't think like him, who didn't believe like him. Stunned silence. I mean, this had to insult everyone. Jesus looks at the lawyer. He looks across the crowd. And Jesus makes a statement, and he says this, go and do likewise. (laughs) He asks a question, so which of these three, the two religious people, the the priest, the one training to be a priest, or this nobody, no, you know, from no man's land? And he says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus' response to that was, yeah, go and do likewise. Go and do the same thing. Go and repeat that cycle over and over and over. That's the cycle that I want you to repeat. Something had changed. Neighbor love had no ethnic or geographical limits anymore. From that point on, everything should have changed. Now, I understand that there's still some some areas of change that needs to happen, but I'm saying Jesus made it clear that from his point of view, from that day on, it was to change. And it really did. It started changing. Neighbor love was evidence of God's love. Neighbor love was evidence of God love. It would be difficult to find a workaround or a loophole for that. If loving one's neighbor is the ultimate expression of one's love and devotion to God, Wow, then the temple and everything associated with it suddenly becomes less important and perhaps unnecessary, which was Jesus' point. This was new. It was brand new. And we talk about why why has Jesus become so resistible? And why are are people so easily, you know, they, they could shut you down and not listen? And I hear these stories, and I'm reminded over and over and over, this ethic that Jesus put into place, if we lived it, if we lived it and breathed it, it would be so attractive to people, people who are the most racist people you ever meet in your life. And I'm not just talking about color. I'm talking about racist about anything. Would Walls would be broken down if we live this ethic that Jesus taught. And we lived it to the fullest. So who is your neighbor? I'm asking you that question to think about. Who who are you tempted to pass by because you're too busy? Or because they're not your responsibility? 
or you just don't want to get involved. Maybe a coworker, maybe someone you live close to, maybe a family member. Whoever that someone is that, that comes to your mind, remember this, according to Jesus, neighbor love demonstrates our God love. The way that we can express it, the way that we can show God love more than any other way in the world, it's not keeping our eyes fixed on Him and walking around oblivious to everything that's happening in the world around us. And that's sometimes what churches are trying to do. Just so focused on God and people are, are crying out for help and the church is going, no, 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 get right with God, get right with God, get right with Everybody look up, everybody look up. The worst thing you could do is have everybody look up. They're going to be rump, running around bumping each other in the head. The best thing that you can do to show how much and God is love people, love people. And man, and it's a challenge. And I practiced this. I, I was telling Kevin the other day, we were somewhere, and I, this guy did something, and oh, man, he just irritated me so bad. He was a smart aleck. Oh, we were at a golf tournament, and the guy, the golf tournament is telling us the rules and stuff, and there's a smart aleck guy who just pops off trying to make this guy look bad. And I just wanted to go over there and just anoint him with a brick. And I looked at Kevin, and what did I say? I said, nope, I'm practicing loving people. And it was funny, and it was a joke, but it's not. It wasn't a joke, because I really am, because that guy really irritated me. And I don't even know him, and he wasn't even talking to me, but he irritated me. But I wanted to practice. I just wanted to practice that I love God so much that I'm going to shut my mouth, and I'm not going to hate on you, I don't know you even though I had a lot of great comebacks. The greatest way that we can demonstrate how much we love God is showing how much we just love people. People that are just so messed up and dumb and crazy and psychopathic that are racist, that are angry, that are violent, that are abusive to people. Can we love them? I mean, really love them? Because the best way that I can show you how much I love God is not by you walking in seven days a week and finding me on my knees in prayer, hallelujah, with the Bible by my side and the anointing oil. The best way that I can show you that your pastor is madly in love with God is I have to be madly in love with people. All of them. Now, go ahead and stand with me this morning. As it turns out, what Jesus only hinted at in exchanges like the one that we discussed, he's actually going to state very, very plainly just a few hours before he's arrested and crucified. And immediately, the audience and plainly they're forced to recognize the new that's coming into play. They're forced to see that things have definitely changed. Father, God, we I say this all the time in my prayer time with you, how much I love you and how thankful I am for everything that you've done for me and everything that you've given to me. God, I say those things all the time. But God, I'm going to do my best to stop trying to express those in my prayer time as if that's making my status with you better or stronger or my relationship with you stronger. But God, in my, in my own personal prayer time, and this is a challenge, God, not just for me, but for our church and for people that may be listening, God, but my challenge is that in my relationship with you and my prayer time with you, that I'll just be an example. God, that I'll talk to you about others, that I'll, I'll spend more time praying, not for me, but for others, that I'll spend more time lifting other people's needs up in prayer. God, because that expression and that example is so much more powerful 
Because it is true that actions speak louder than words. And I can, I can say it until I'm blue in the face every day. God, I love you. God, I love you. God, I love you. God, I love you. But I'm not going to say it so much anymore. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you how just crazy, crazy in love with you I am. Because I love the people that you created. And through that love, the people that they don't even know what you've done for them, God, they'll see it in me and things will begin to change. And people will come into the knowledge of the fact that you gave your life for them and that you have brought them in as sons and daughters in the kingdom. And so, Father, I just pray that I live that to the very best of my ability. And we just give you all the praise, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.